So I'm going to ask if you would join in uh, Revelation chapter 2. Join me there. Revelation chapter 2. We're going to read what Jesus had to say to the Christians of Pergamum. Uh, We're going to jump into Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. While you're finding it, I didn't mention my shirt. I don't normally wear uh, t-shirts, but this is one that my children bought me. And uh, it says that I'm the galaxy's greatest dad. So I thought that was kind of nice. Those of you who don't know any Star Wars references, this shirt makes no sense to you, and that's okay. Uh, my kids are Star Wars fans, and um, they think I'm the greatest dad in the galaxy. So there you go. Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. Now, if you're just joining us, if you haven't been through this series with us the last couple weeks... The angel is a word used for messenger, and the letter is written specifically directed towards the elders, the pastor of the church here in Pergamum, and the message is to them, and the message is from Jesus. And here he describes himself as the the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, each letter, you probably have noticed that Jesus describes himself in a different way. And here, Jesus describes himself as the one with the sharp two-edged sword. That is a reference to God's Word. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Jesus is describing Himself as the one with the two-edged sword. In in Roman culture, the double-edged sword, the two-edged sword, was a symbol of authority. So the way Jesus is describing Himself, the way Jesus is is uh, depicting the Word of God, is having authority over our lives. That's important. I don't want you to just gloss over that. It's going to mean something to us later on in today's sermon. So don't forget, Jesus has authority over our lives. The Word of God has authority over our lives. Let's read on. Jesus says this to them. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. That doesn't sound like a real fun place for Christians to live, but perhaps it is a reference to Asclepios, the god, the god of healing, and and uh, because that's the, the the serpent is is his symbol. If we read on, it says, "Yet you have remained loyal to me." So you're living in this really difficult situation, this really difficult environment. But you've remained faithful. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Well, it gives you a little bit of a window into what, just how difficult it was to live in Pergamum. Here's a, one example of someone who died, who was killed because of his faith in Jesus. I love the fact that, uh, that Jesus compliments them for holding on to their faith and remaining true in their, in their faith. I find that to be inspiring. I find that 
understanding the world that they lived in and the city that they lived in, it's really impressive. Imagine living in, in modern-day context, imagine living in, a, in the dorms of a secular university. If you're a Christian living in a dorm in a secular university today, what are you going to do on the weekend? You're going to join into the party? I mean, you only have so many choices, right? Are you going to join into the, the party and everything that goes along with the party? Or are you going to sit alone all weekend by yourself in the dorm? If you knew a student who, who made it all four years at a secular university and, and didn't compromise his or her faith, you'd be pretty impressed by that, right? That they were willing to accept the loneliness and the isolation now, I don't know why you'd want to do that. I don't know why you would want to go and, and, and make that be your experience. Uh, but let's say that you did and you stayed true and faithful to your, to your calling in, in Jesus Christ in that kind of situation. That would be impressive. But as we read on, uh, we find that there were some who were even willing to give up their lives to follow Jesus, but not all of them were. Not all of them were. He says this in verse 14, but... I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam. We'll explain that in a second. Who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What sword is that? The double-edged sword that was referenced earlier, the sword of authority that Jesus has over us. Verse 17, anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He is saying to the churches. Who's that talking to? Well, that's us. We should learn from this. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives. There's a lot of stuff in there, a lot of imagery, and we'll break that all down see if we can make sense of all of that. The problem in Pergamum was, yeah, there were some who were true their faith, and, and they were living in a difficult environment, and yet they were willing to pay the price and, and do what it t- took to uh, stay true to, to following Jesus, but not everyone was. Not everyone was willing to uh, stay alone and isolated in the dorm, if you will. Some of them had let the culture that they lived in wear them down, and they were compromising God's standards. Some in this church. Now, don't gloss over that. We understand why it's happening in the city at large in Pergamon, right? They're pagan worshipers. That's what they believe. That's what they've been taught. We get why that's happening. Why the sexual depravity and worshiping of snakes. We get why that's happening with them. But this is being addressed to people where? In the church. Don't gloss over that. And what was the problem? Well, some were following the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. Remember the Nicolaitans from when we studied 
Ephesus, the Nicolaitans believed that it didn't matter what you did with your body. As long as your heart is good, just follow your heart. Just do what your heart tells you. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. Just follow your heart, and that was okay, which is not biblical, but that was something that this guy who originally was called on to be a deacon in the church started teaching people, and that was a problem. And now there's an additional reference here to Balaam, who this is a similar example to something that happened in the Old Testament. And I would encourage you this week, if you don't know the story of Balaam and his donkey, to read this story. It's in Numbers. It starts in chapter 22, and it goes all the way to chapter 25. It would be worth, it would be worth reading. It's a story that includes a talking donkey, like a for real, like, not like the one from Shrek, like a for real talking donkey. That's a pretty cool story, right? Uh, so read that. If you don't know the story, it's cool. But uh, the, the quick version of it was that Balaam was this wicked prophet. And Balak was the king of Moab. And Balak notices that Israel was powerful and he's nervous and he wants, uh, he wants rid of them. And so he tries to hire this wicked prophet Balaam tries to hire him to, to put a curse on Israel so that they would die. And so he sends like this delegation and, and all this money, and, and God says to Balaam, no, you're, you can't curse Israel. And so the king of Moab sent more money and more people to try to put pressure on him to do it. And he actually considered, went back to God and said, it's a lot of money. Can I curse, Can I curse Israel? It's a lot of money. And it went through this whole thing. When you read through this story, uh, Balaam tried three different times to try to convince God to let him curse Israel. It's very bizarre. And, of course, there's a talking donkey in there. And uh, to me, one of the oddest things about the whole story, when the donkey, donkey starts talking to, to Balaam, he just acts like it's normal. That was so weird in the story. It's like uh, you're just having a conversation with my donkey. Anyway, so... You get through this story, and God makes Balaam bless Israel instead of curse Israel, right? So Balak, the king, is mad. Balaam's mad because he doesn't get paid. And when you go to the next chapter, what you find what happens next is Balaam gave some advice to Balak. And what they did was since, since Balaam couldn't curse Israel directly, he says, this is what you do. Just get them to worship idols. Just get them to sin sexually, and God will take care of the rest. And that's what they did. So they, they tricked and convinced the Israelites to worship uh, Baal, this, this false god, and uh, be involved in sexual depravity. And it worked. 24,000 of them, of the Israelites, died before God cut it off and, uh, and relented in his wrath. It's an interesting story, and here uh, Jesus is referencing it that there were some people in the church who were like Balaam, who were like uh, Nicholas, who were teaching God's people to worship idols, who were teaching God's people it was okay to be involved in sexual sin. God says, Jesus says, uh, this, this has to stop, this has to, this has to change. You might remember uh, Bugs Bunny. Remember, remember Bugs Bunny? I, I guess he's still around. I don't know. 
But Bugs Bunny would go and have all these little, these little battles with Yosemite Sam and, and Daffy Duck, right, Elmer Fudd. And what was always great about those battles is that Bugs Bunny just had a way of wearing them down, right, for like 10 minutes in that cartoon, however long it lasted. He would just wear them. They would try this, and uh, it didn't work. They would try something else, and he would just wear them down to the point of exhaustion, and they would give up. At the end of the cartoon, they would give up, and sometimes they would say something like this. They would say, well, if you can't beat them, join them. Remember this? If you can't beat them, join them. You have heard that phrase, right? Last week, I, I told you a phrase, therein lies the rub, and I got home uh, for lunch, and my family informed me that no one has ever heard that phrase. I'm Shakespeare. I just assumed people had heard that phrase before. Um, they're like, why did you keep saying rub? It was so weird or whatever, but you know. So you've heard, if you can't beat them, join them, right? You've heard this phrase? All right. I don't know what to do for you if you don't know these phrases. I don't know how to help you. But, but some Christians in Pergamum, they were faithful no matter what, which is super impressive. They were willing to risk it all for the sake of Jesus. They were not willing to compromise morally. And we're inspired by that. But some were tired of fighting temptation. They had come to the place of exhaustion when they just said to themselves, you know what, if I can't beat them, I might as well just join them. They let the culture wear them down. It was a little compromise here, a little compromise there. It was like this slow fade into big sin. If you think about it, we've seen these things happen in our modern context. It's nothing new. When a pastor of a large church gets caught in in an affair and it's like all through the news, or take it something a little bit more local, a little bit more kind of any church, anywhere kind of a thing, imagine a family that blows apart, a Christian family, in any local church that, that gets destroyed because maybe the husband has an affair, the wife has an affair, something like that, and we... We see that happen sometimes, and we wonder, how did, how did it get to that point? How in the world did that, did that happen? You know, did, this, did this dad, did this husband just wake up one day, maybe it was on Father's Day, and, and say to himself, you know, I like following Jesus. It's, it's pretty good. But you know what might be fun? What if... What if instead I I destroyed my family, I destroyed my church, I destroyed my pastoral career by having an affair? Let's let's maybe try that instead. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says that to themselves. No, there, there were hundreds of smaller compromises. There were hundreds of bad choices that that led up to that really bad moment when the price of sin came crashing down and blew up that family or blew up that church. We don't wake up one day and decide. I've been around long enough and have done enough visiting and nursing homes. I've seen a lot of different people as we get older. I'm putting myself into the now because I do feel like I'm getting older and I'm being more mindful of how my personality may or may not be changing as I get older. Because I see 
uh, I, I, I've known some older ladies, especially in our church, older ladies in our church that have been the sweetest people I've ever met in my entire life. Just incredible, loving, gracious, kind women, right? And every once in a while, you meet someone, man or woman, doesn't matter, you, you meet someone who's older, and they're just terrible. They just hate life, right? And, and you can tell by looking at them that they, they hate you, they hate everything about everything going on that day. I don't want to wind up that way. And, and I, I don't think, I'm pretty confident that people don't say to themselves, you know what, joy and peace and kindness, that stuff's okay. But I think it would be fun to be an angry, bitter person that hates life and looks like I've been sucking on a lemon all day. I don't think people get up in the morning and make that their goal. But it happens, right? You probably, I'm sure, know people like that. If, if we wind up becoming a grumpy curmudgeon, how does it happen? It doesn't happen like that. It's years of unforgiveness and bitterness that builds up like plaque on a heart that results in that. Can't beat them. Join them. I think this, I think this warning to the church of Pergamon is so important for us to hear today. I know from the perspective of, of a dad, this, this warning, this lesson, these principles are things that I desperately want my children to know and understand. And as a pastor, I, I, I desperately want our church family to know and understand these principles. If you are a true follower of Jesus... That means that you don't just believe the facts about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because Satan knows the facts, right? All his demons know the facts. If you are a follower of Jesus, yes, it means you have chosen to trust Jesus as your forgiver of sin, your Savior from hell, but it also means that you trust Him as your Lord, that you trust him as the one who has, as Jesus put it here, authority over your life. That's what it means to follow Jesus. A true follower of Jesus wants to follow Jesus. Now that may sound very simplistic, but it needs to be said. Because you can walk into any church in America, and it won't be hard to find some who attend church, and maybe they do it on a regular basis, but they go through life, they, they look one way or sound one way on Sunday, and they put on the show or whatever, and then the rest of the week, they're making up their own standards. The rest of the week, they have no problem living the same way the rest of the culture lives. So here's the warning. If you can self-assess. It's not my place to, to come and, 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 and try to judge you. You self-assess. If you have no interest in following Jesus, why in the world would you think that you're a follower of Christ? Now, for those who are truly followers of Christ, it's not that we're perfect. It's not that we don't have shortcomings and flaws and failures. We do. But there's a desire within us to follow him, to, to, to 
surrender ourselves under the authority of His Word, under His authority. For those of us who are truly following Christ, live and we're living in this modern version of Pergamum, there is this temptation every day of our lives to compromise God's standards. It is all around us. You can't escape it. It's all around us. It's in entertainment. It's in advertising. It's in the news. It's, it's in sports. It's in academics. You know, our, our phones are really great tools. They're, they're, they're great modern tools, and they can be used for a lot of good things. But it's like carrying around temptation in your pocket all day between social media and the things that you have instant access to that we have no business looking at. Temptation is all around us. Paganism and the worship of, of things that we shouldn't be worshiping, the love of things that we shouldn't love is all around us. So how do we keep our Hearts, how do we keep our minds from getting to this place of exhaustion where we say to ourselves, I'm just tired. I'm tired of fighting this. If I can't beat them, I might as well join them. How do we keep our hearts from moving to that place? Remember what we said at the beginning. The solution is always Jesus. Whatever problem we are facing, wherever we find shortcomings in our faith, Jesus is always the solution. So we go back to Jesus here, and what does he say? He says to them, I know where you live. That's the first thing. I know where you live. And when Jesus said that, he doesn't say it with the tone of a gangster saying, I know where you live. It's not a threatening statement. When Jesus says, I know where you live, it's an encouragement. It's a message of understanding. Jesus understands the intense temptation that is all around us, and He's with us. He's ready to help us resist temptation. So we have to remember Jesus is the solution who can help us resist temptation, to refuse to compromise and remain pure. Listen to these verses. James chapter 1 says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does He tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. It starts at the desire level, where there's a desire in us for sin. A desire in us, in our minds and our hearts, for something that God says is off limits. And if we give any... Uh, any time or thought or energy to this desire, what happens? It, it conceives sin. After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. An absolute must in our daily prayer life needs to be praying for a righteous desire, that we would desire what is righteous more then we desire what sin is offering us, what sin is tempting us with. I know it, it, sometimes it seems like we should be praying, Lord, help me not to do this, help me not to do that, help me to do the right thing. Back up one more step from that and just pray that God, because if, if you're not having success in that 
uh, that give me just the, the, the force of will to say no to sin. Back up. Lord, give me the right desire. Give me the strong desire for righteousness that I would want what is right and best more than I want these things that you say are off limits. The powerful daily prayer that should be part of our lives. James 4, 7 then goes on to say, Submit yourselves then to God. Why? Because He has authority. His word has authority over our lives. Jesus is the King who has authority over our lives. Submit yourselves to Him. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we're asking that God would give us righteous desires. We're surrendering ourselves under His authority. And this gives us the power that we need to resist temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. These are important promises. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. I want to take just a second to... uh, I guess, explain how this verse sometimes gets misquoted or misused. Sometimes people will hear that verse and and they apply it in the wrong way. They'll say uh, that God won't let me have to go through anything I can't handle. That God won't let us go through something that we can't handle. And that's not what that says. That's not what it means. Often, in fact, it's the opposite of that. God often does allow us to go through things, pain, suffering, hardship that we cannot handle on our own for that very purpose, to teach us that we shouldn't be going through life on our own, to teach us how do we rely on God to get us through this. We're not talking about the trials that we go through in life that we need to depend on the Lord for. talking about temptation of sin. And in that context, there are two promises that we should never forget. Number one, God promises to restrain some of that temptation, which is good to know. I mean, there might be days when you feel like, man, the temptation is super strong. Just know that it could be worse, that God is restraining some of that. And the second promise, even of the the temptation that God is not uh, completely restraining from you, He is providing a way out. He's not removing your ability to choose. God is not uh, turning you into a robot. He's not taking away from you free will. But he's restraining some of that temptation, and he's providing a way out. So whether it is a trial or it is a temptation, both of those things require the same thing. Trust in the Lord for help. Trust the Lord to help us resist temptation, to to refuse to compromise, to remain pure. My friend, uh, Brant, Pastor Brant from Martinsburg has a quote that I love. He says, don't allow your eyes to adjust to the darkness. That's good stuff. And what he means by that is we, 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 can't, we can't allow ourselves to adjust the standards of the authority of God's word to a new normal. To, to make up our own moral code, to, to just do what we think is acceptable, to rationalize or minimize sin, because that is the first step towards disaster. 
And I know that's sometimes easier said than done. Why? Because we live in a modern-day version of Pergamum. It's everywhere. Temptation is everywhere. Evil is everywhere. But this is promising. Jesus is promising us victory, that we can have victory over temptation when we remember that Jesus is the solution who can help us resist. He describes himself as the hidden manna. I love that image. It's a reference back to when the the Hebrew people were coming out of slavery in Egypt, and they're in the wilderness, and there's nothing to eat. And so God provided for them food from heaven, this manna, this heavenly food, and it was uh, was there to sustain them in a difficult environment. And Jesus is describing himself that way, that he is there uh, to sustain us even though we are living in a very difficult environment. 2 Peter 1.3 is a wonderful promise. His, God's, divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us by His own glory and goodness. Remember that Jesus is the solution. He's the one who can help us resist temptation. But watch this. What if you come up short? What if you fail? What if, what if you drift? What if at some point in your Christian walk you get tired, you get worn down by the culture that you're living in, and you get to this place where you're like, I, I don't know, maybe if I can't beat them, I'll just join them. What if that happens to you? Maybe, maybe it happens because Uh, you desperately want affirmation from the people that you go to school with. You desperately want to be accepted by the people that you work with. You don't want to be left at the dorm alone all weekend. And you're tired of it. What if if all you have just a few small compromises, a few poor choices that kind of add on top of each other over time, and eventually they wind up becoming this really big mess that you created, what do you do? Jesus gives the answer. Jesus is the solution. He gives us the solution. Repent. He just simply says repent. Confess and turn away from sin. Come back to the Lord. I want you to have this image because if that's you, sometimes maybe you get to this place where you're like, I don't know, I, I messed up. I decided I couldn't beat them, and I joined them, and now I'm not sure what to do about it. And I don't really think God's too interested in me or my sorries or whatever. But that's not the image that God reveals to us in His Word. The the, the image of God when it comes to repentance and confession of sin and returning is not God who stands there with arms folded and a grumpy scowl of disappointment. The image that we see all throughout Scripture of of those who repent is one of God with open arms and eyes full of mercy and grace and love that desperately wants us to come back into right relationship with Him. And so if, if that's where you are, come back, repent, knowing and believing that God desperately wants you to return to Him. Jesus is the solution to our sin problem. When we, when we put our faith in Him for forgiveness, when we trust Him to be our Lord, I love this phrase. It says, Jesus says, I give you a new name. A new name. 
If I, if I said the, the name of certain people, you would automatically associate that name with some terrible things, right? There's certain names that just kind of live on like that. Nobody names their child Adolf. Nobody names their daughter Jezebel for good reason, because those names are associated with a terrible past. And maybe when your name is mentioned, some people associate your name with a past that you're not proud of. I know how that feels. I know how it feels to sometimes run into people that I went to high school with, and they remember what I was like before I took my faith with Christ, my journey with Jesus seriously. They remember that and have no problem bringing it up. So I understand what that feels like. And maybe you can relate to that. You know that there are some people that when your name gets brought up, what they remember are your past mistakes. Well, how do you, how do you change that? Well, the only way to change that is if you change your name, right? You'd have to have a new name to completely escape that. But that's what Jesus is promising. That's what Jesus is providing, a new name. And he says, I'm going to etch it. I'm going to write it into the white acquittal stone. In an ancient trial, you would have a black stone and a white stone. Black meant guilty, and white was the stone of acquittal. And when the stone of acquittal was laid, you were set free. It was a clean slate. It meant a new beginning. It meant a fresh start. Now, don't miss this. You ready? We're building to this point. Even if the whole world knows you by your old name, Jesus and you know your new name. And that's how Jesus sees you. Now, here's why that matters. If that can be enough for you, if you, in your heart, in your mind, are able to get to this place where you say, I don't need the affirmation of these people that know my past. I don't need the acceptance of these people who want me to be like them and to compromise my faith. I don't need that affirmation and acceptance. I don't need it because I am, I am, I am comfortable and satisfied in the affirmation and acceptance of Jesus Christ. It's all I need, and I have it. If your heart is in that place where, where you are satisfied with the affirmation and acceptance of Jesus and you don't need anything outside of that, then you're not going to feel like quitting when someone brings up your past. You're not going to feel like giving up when it gets really hard to live out your faith in a really difficult environment because you already have what you need inside. You already have the affirmation and acceptance of Jesus, and it's enough. What if, what if we took what we learned today from what Jesus said to the church in Pergamon? What if we used that, those principles, to change the phrase? If you can't beat them, join them. What if we changed that phrase to this? I don't have to beat them. I don't have to join them. I just have to love them. 
I, I, I don't need their affirmation. I don't need their acceptance. I'm already affirmed and accepted by Jesus Christ, and it's enough for me. And so I'm just going to love these people and hopefully love them in a way that will show them that there's a better way to live life by following Jesus Christ. Or perhaps we could change that phrase to when I can't beat them and I know that I shouldn't join them, I'm going to trust God to provide for me a way out and the desire to find it. I wonder if there is something in your life right now that would fall under that category, something that you know you know full well. If you were to follow uh, under the, or surrender yourself under the authority of God's word, if you were to follow Jesus, then what you're doing you know isn't right, you know isn't good. You know that you've compromised. You know that, uh, that God is not pleased. If there's something in your life, what are you going to do with that? What are you going to do about that? Jesus gives us a solution to that. The solution is, is to repent, to come back into right relationship with Him. What if, what if uh, it, it's just getting harder and harder and you feel yourself getting more and more exhausted because it's, you go to work, you go to school, and it's just every day. You're pushed to the side, you're made fun of, you're, you're isolated, no one wants anything to do with you, and it just, it's exhausting. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to let yourself become exhausted and tired to the point where you're saying, well, I can't beat them, I might as well join them. Or are you going to say, Lord, Lord, please, Give me a desire, a, a burning desire for righteousness and, and help, help me to come to this place in my heart where my relationship with you, my, the affirmation I get from you, the acceptance that I get from you, let that be enough for me. Let me be satisfied in that.